You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I have a special episode for you. Uh, it's with Shane Bauer, who went undercover at a private prison in Louisiana for four months, wrote a story about it for Mother Jones. It's incredible. Read it, then listen to this interview, which, as always, is brought to you by MailChimp. They make these kind of special episodes viable for us. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Shane Bauer. Uh, welcome, Shane Bauer. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Um, we are, are speaking to you. Um, you are at uh, Mother Jones's office in San Francisco. I am in the lovely long form studios. Um, I just read, I just like stayed up late uh, last night reading this article, which I started at about 11 and thought I could finish in a reasonable amount of time. It turned out to be many more words uh, than I expected. How, how long is the story actually? <laughs> uh, I think it's about 35,000 words. So what was, how long was your first draft of this story? <laughs> I know after editing this thing forever, I feel like I'm surprised that we got it down to 35,000 words actually I mean it kind of morphed over time you know things actually added when I first wrote it I just kind of wrote about my experience and when and then I did a lot of other reporting and kind of wrote it in so it was kind of a long process of trading things out I'm I'm actually sort of keenly interested in what this story looked like before you spent the time at win um mm-hmm. I think that yeah. this the sort of idea of an embedded undercover journalist looms large in pop culture, as evidenced by someone, mm-hmm. say, one of the other uh, COs sort of mentioning it, but actually doesn't happen as much um, in the present day as maybe it once did. So I, I'm interested in right. like what you conceived this of um, going in. You know, I've been writing about criminal justice and prisons for a few years, and you know, I'm kind of constantly coming up against walls. It's really hard to get information from prisons, especially to be able to really tell a good story, um, something that really gets up close. You know, usually, even if you get inside of a prison, you're kind of going on a tour with some prison spokesperson. Any information you get is through a spokesperson or through prisoners, which, you know, it's hard to verify what they say. It's hard to verify what anybody says about prison. So I kind of had this idea of applying uh, for a job with a private prison company, partially chose a private prison company because one because it's kind of the most 
secretive corner in, in many ways of the of the world of prisons in the United States. And, you know, I just read a lot of kind of things that pop up in the news every once in a while about, um, you know, riots or one prison was shut down in Idaho um, over understaffing and violence. So I basically filled out an application online on the website of the Corrections Corporation of America, and it was kind of a whim. I mean, I never really thought it would work out, but, you know, it took an hour to do. So I just filled it out, filled it out truthfully. Did you pick this specific prison to apply to, or was this sort of a general, like, I'd like to work for CCA somewhere kind of application? Yeah, it was just like a kind of generic corporate application. And then after filling it out, you basically check some boxes of what facilities you're interested in. So I just kind of clicked a handful of them randomly. And within a couple of weeks, I was getting calls from almost all of them uh, wanting to do interviews. So for people who haven't read the story, which I encourage anyone who has not read the story, just hit pause right now and uh, spend the next two to three hours of your life enjoying the story. Um, But one of the most incredible details of the story is that you did this basically transparently under your own name. Were you thinking at that point, I'm one Google away from this all falling apart? Or, I mean, was that thought in your mind the entire time? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's why I didn't think it would work. I mean, one, if they paid close attention while reading the application, you know, I would assume there would be some red flags. I listed my current employer. And two, yeah, if they Google my name, then that's it. You know, they they find out I'm a reporter. So it just seemed impossible. I mean, the idea of doing this kind of reporting, you know, of, of really immersing seemed different to me now than it had in the past because we have Google. But turns out it's not really. And when I did an interview, I mean, they didn't even... They didn't even really ask me questions about working in a prison. It was kind of like, you know, a, an interview you would expect to get at a Walmart or something. Like, you know, if you if your boss tells you something to do and you don't like it, what do you do? And the only question they asked me that actually pertained to prisons was, um, what is your idea of customer service and how does it apply to inmates? <laughs> so they didn't ask whether you'd ever been in prison. That was not part of the uh, entry. <laughs> no, they didn't ask that, no. Would have you but answered also, truthfully you know, that later if, if that had if that had been asked? Oh yeah, that was that was the ground rule going in that I never lie. Um, uh-huh. So if if I had been asked that, you know, sometimes I would kind of try to back out of something. Somebody asked me why I moved from California to the middle of nowhere in Louisiana. You know, I might say something like, "You never know where life will take you," or something <laughs> like that. But um, <laughs> you know, but. I would never lie about if somebody asked if I was a journalist, you know, that would have kind of been the end of the project. So tell me about the decision not to lie, because to me, it seems like if you're going to invest so much time and and energy in this, you'd almost want to protect that labor um, by uh, instituting some security measures. And and you go to pretty great lengths in the story to explain how um, you were able to do this without lying. But where did that decision start? I mean, I think that's it's a standard of journalism that I think is worthwhile to uphold. And even though this this kind of reporting is pushing that line in some ways, um, I think if I were to go down the road of allowing myself to lie, I think it's just it just is so easy, you know, and it's hard to pull back. And, and also, I mean, I think part of the reason that people don't do this kind of reporting much anymore is because there's been 
massive legal consequences. Um, there was the ABC Food Lion story where reporters were working um, and for Food Lion and were repackaging spoiled meat. And uh, they did an expose about it and Food Lion sued. And, you know, they, they had lied on their application. So that was kind of a basis for uh, a lawsuit claiming that they had been fraudulent. You know, so it's, it's, you, you have to be careful about that kind of stuff, doing something like this. Did you research um, the recent history of undercover reporting? And did you have models for how you wanted to conduct this in- investigation? Our lawyers did a lot of research before before I went, for sure, you know, just to kind of know what the red flags were, the things that we had to look out for and be careful for. Um, and I, you know, I was familiar with Ted Conover's work, of course. He worked uh, for a year as a guard in Sing Sing. And the journalism I love the most is is immersion. You know, that's that's been something that I've kind of been moving towards throughout my career. And so I guess I've been kind of familiar with, with those works and, you know, wanted to, um, to kind of emulate the, the stuff that makes you feel like you're not reading a journalist. So as you prepared for this, the story kind of ends abruptly when your photographer is um, discovered photographing the prison. But how long were you intending to stay if, if that had not happened? Once I got in, it was like, okay, let's do this. And for as long as it takes, really. Um, But I was at that time, I was really considering leaving. Um, It was getting really hard and it was taking a toll on me um, psychologically, just doing this job every day. But I had been recently um, named for a promotion. So I was kind of deciding whether I should take a promotion and see where that goes or just just pull out. I feel like there's an alternate version of this story where you like make it all the way to <laughs> Warden and you're like running CCA <laughs> by the end. Um, so, so I mean, that, that's an interesting question. Like while I was reading this story several times, I would go, um, you would cite how long it had been and I would be shocked. Like there's a point in the middle where you've witnessed like seven stabbings and an attempted, you know, uh, an escape and, a, and a, a, a suicide threat. And you're like, and I, and I had been there for just under two months. I mean, it feels like years. Did time start to collapse and, and move? And I mean, I know that you've also spent time in prison, so you are um, familiar with yeah. the uh, elasticity of time. But what did it feel like on a day-to-day level while you were inside? Well, this... During this experience, it collapsed in a much different way than it did while I was in prison myself. This was, it was just so intense, you know. Um, When I wrote the story, you know, I was writing the first draft, writing these scenes out, you know, I I didn't necessarily kind of put time markers on them initially. And when I was going back and doing that, I was kind of like, this really was only after a week or two weeks, you know. It was, it was, it just, you know, felt like it had been such a long time. I mean, there were days that I was in there that there were just so many things that would happen, you know, that um, when you're kind of turning it into a written story, it takes a lot of space and, but it's really only just a 12 hour period. Um, And then, you know, just, just having this kind of um, level of stress. I mean, it's, 
one of the most stressful situations that I've ever been in. I'm kind of constantly looking over my shoulder, trying to figure out how to, to make it through the day. And it just feels like you're living, you know, many, many days over and over within one. I mean, I guess, you know, it's hard for me to compare my experience as a prisoner to the experience of prisoners at Wynn because it was a very different situation. And Wynn was a lot more chaotic and a lot more dangerous. But, you know, in my own experience, it was kind of an issue of time slowing way down, you know, because I had spent time in solitary confinement and was isolated for two years. So it was like, you know, more like the week is done and it feels like it's been two months. The issue of note taking is um, a major issue inside the story. Um, it's sort of the the thing that sets you apart from the other guards is this um, constant need to to take notes. So I'm wondering how you handled note taking, like what kind of notes you took and um, what you were comfortable writing down and, and having on your person um, within when. Well, luckily we were... Um they asked us to carry a notebook because, you know, I was working in a unit with 350 prisoners and there was me and one other guard who were the main people who interacted with these 350 prisoners. So there's just so much coming at you all the time that you can't remember it. So they wanted us to keep a notebook in, you know, with us to jot things down. So that was kind of a convenient cover in some ways for me to just be able to pull my notebook out and just write when I'm standing around a bunch of people. Sometimes prisoners would get nervous and I pulled it out because they thought I was writing them up for something. Um, And sometimes I would just like kind of go into the bathroom and write things down. I mean, I was nervous for a while about somebody looking in my notebook, but I kind of, you know, decided after a while that if it, if it was ever at that point, things were over anyway. But in, when I was in training, it was, it was easy because I was sitting in a classroom And I could just take notes the whole time. Although that did kind of make me stand out because nobody else was taking any notes. I was, and I was sitting there studiously jotting everything down. I like that. What, what um, people are sort of suspicious about you is that you're trying too hard that like uh, Uh. the the weird part about you is that you're putting any effort into, into it. Um, But (laughs) in a, in a situation like that, where there's chaos everywhere, dysfunction everywhere, what what becomes a note? What merits um, getting written down in a notebook when you have that kind of uh, sensory everything all over the place, violence, uh, um, chaos all around? What, what do you what do you gravitate towards in terms of what you want to remember? Uh, it could be something someone said that was notable. Um, yeah, it could be an event just to make sure that I you know wrote about it at the end of the day. Um, just to kind of jog my memory. Um, it could be that I noticed that the doors weren't working in this one place or, you know, some detail about uh, how the place was functioning. Um, I would write down in the morning when I came into the morning meetings, how many people showed up every day. Cause that was, you know, shift change. So I would know how many guards there are um, showing up for work. You know, some days it was as low as 24 guards for 1500 prisoners. So, you know, I try to keep track of that stuff um, so that I could later, you know, if I found a contract, could compare it to the numbers that, you know, they were supposed to have in there. And 
that relates in 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 some ways to your previous um, reporting on American prisons, because generally when people report on prisons, you're citing um, statistics and, and citing figures that are, in the case of private prisons, self-reported. Exactly. So there's so many things that I found reporting this story in this way that I would have never found any other way. So when I was there during a two month period, there were 12 stabbings, at least. I mean, these are 12 that I knew about. Right. And, and when you I were later only, on, only on one got unit. Records. So there was potentially other stabbings that even well, you were Well, this was in other places too. Okay. Um, you know, this might've been something the warden told us about the next morning in the meeting um, or things that I saw. Um, but the but CCA reported in a 10 month period, uh, just five stabbings. You know, so if I even if I had been able to get a hold of these records, you know, in the kind of usual way that reporters do, that's the number I would have. You know, I wouldn't know that they might not be reporting all of this stuff. This is really the only way to know that is is by being there. It's kind of incredible because it's not like the officially reported statistics are optimistic or, um, you know, making anyone feel good. <laughs> right. I mean, it's sort of like uh, the um, the bad to worse, the uh, uh, reservation right. inside a reservation um, kind of, wow, these figures are just terrible. So, so I'm wondering when you took all of these notes at the end, when you compiled all of these notebooks and sort of looked looked at the sum of everything that you had written down, what did it look like? And what did it, what did it feel like reliving the experience through your notes? I basically had a huge document um, that went day by day of notes. And some of those notes, you know, when I, on my days off, I would go back and try to just turn into like a rough scene. If there was something that happened that was clearly going to be a scene in the story, I would just try to flesh it out a little bit, but it was a ton of stuff. I mean, I was there for four months. So I just started coming through all of it kind of pulling out the good stuff, writing down, um, you know, just a list of, of what the, the scenes are that I can't do without and um, just start writing that. When you started picking the scenes that you, you couldn't live without, what was the quality of those scenes <laughs> that made them integral to the project? It depended. I mean, sometimes they were just really um, telling interactions. Um, there was one time that I was standing around with a group of cadets and um, we were learning how to do shakedowns and they were all talking about, you know, they had heard rumors that some prisoners had cash cards or money and they were um, getting really excited. And these are, they're young. I mean, they're 18, 20 year olds. And, you know, they were just kind of getting giddy about finding money and taking them for prisoners. And, and there was a, one of the supervisors <clears throat> was hand, ended up, finding cash cards and was kind of handing them out, you know, there's just these moments that, that would really kind of just bring it to life. And that was kind of the main thing I was looking for, but there were also, you know, the kind of more um, usual investigative journalism type stuff. Like when I knew that there was going to be an audit of the prison by um, this auditing body called, body called the American Correctional Association which had the same precedent as the uh, CCA, right? Which is uh, just a detail that's like, right, oh, exactly. God, this is yeah. totally, this is beyond beyond whatever levels I thought it was going to uh, descend to. Yeah, you know, and they, this prison has gotten a 99% score and the average score of all CCA prisons around the country are 99% of this auditing body. Um, you know, so I knew that getting a, as much detail as I could about 
them showing up was going to be important and and telling you know it shows something else that was beyond this one prison so you know i knew no matter what that was going to have to be a scene in there um and then there were just like a lot of kind of points of action that you know there's a stabbing that i witnessed there were moments that i kind of flipped out myself and i wasn't sure that i was going to put that stuff in at first but i uh i decided as i start writing that I, I just felt that it would be kind of dishonest to leave that out. So I really pushed myself to be as honest as possible about everything. Having read the story to, to imagine it without um, questions about your own mental health, is sort of unimaginable to me as a reader. I mean, it it's yeah. sort of the first thing it's like, uh, you know, uh, seeing someone die, you just assume that someone's going to have, have a response to it. But I'm interested, like, you don't, I think, in the story, mention that you yourself were in solitary confinement when you're talking about solitary confinement. So how did you sort of define the parameters of what parts of you would be allowed into the stories and what would not? That was a big decision for me and my editors. After I got out of prison in Iran in 2011, I wrote a story um, that I worked on for a long time about solitary confinement in the United States. And I, I wove my own experience into that story, having experienced it to kind of kind of act as a bridge in a way for people to connect to. It's really hard for people to connect to prisoners generally. And, you know, I, it's been five years since I since I've been out and I really didn't want people to read this story as I didn't want them to be distracted by this kind of curiosity that this, you know, person who had been in prison in Iran for, for two years was doing this. I wanted them to really see it, you know, to see uh, when, to see, maybe see, see themselves to some degree in um, me as a guard and to think about how, you know, ways that they might relate to that um, experience of being in a situation where they, are not able to kind of resist these larger forces. I didn't want it to be like, this is the life of Shane Bauer doing this thing. I just wanted to use myself to illuminate the situation, you know, and not really anything outside of that. Do you think that having had that prior experience um, informed your emotional response to the things that you saw? Because you are pretty open in, in the article about being legitimately freaked out and um, that everyone else is is basically uh, undergoing that. But for in their case, for the first time, um, you know, most of these COs, right. this is the first time they've set foot in a situation like this. You know, I think it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't know. I mean, you yeah. know, this is my, my life and I had been in prison. It's hard to imagine what it would be like if I hadn't. I mean, I doubt I would have done this. Um, yeah. You know, I I hadn't written about prisons before I was in prison myself, and that experience certainly drew me to investigating prisons in the United States. Um, but, you know, there was kind of a dynamic of, I mean, it was just hard to be a guard, you know. Um, and I, there were times that I wanted to tell prisoners that, that I had been a prisoner, at least, that I had some sense of what captivity is like. But at the same time, that experience was just so intense that it, when I was in there, I didn't really have a lot of time to reflect. You know, I was just so, so present in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. I mean, it was all about kind of that moment or what, you know, what's, what's going to happen when, at chow time when we let everyone out and 
who are the people I have to look out for? Who are the people that I'm having trouble with? You know, it's just the web of, of power was so complex in there that it really consumed everything. But, you know, there were there were moments that it would kind of come to the forefront uh, for me. There was a time when the prison was locked down and we were uh, distributing, we had to bring food to the, the prisoners. They couldn't go out to the, to the cafeteria. So, you know, they had been locked down for, for days, which meant they couldn't leave their dorms. So there was a lot of tension uh, building and um, I would, bring this cart in to a dorm and this one prisoner took an extra food cart off the tray. And I just kind of went off on him. I just started yelling at him and was kind of just standing over him. And there was a time that I was in prison that one of the kind of craziest moments actually when I was in prison was when my friend Josh took an extra food tray off of a cart and this guard flipped out and took him away and almost beat me. And you know, when I did that, that all kind of came to the forefront of my mind. And it was like, wow, here I am, you know, on the other side. Was there any discussion about your limits and sort of when um, when the plug was going to get pulled on this? Because you have a pressure coming from two sides. One, there's just this systemic violence among prisoners um, that's a hazard to you. But there's also sort of a paranoia that guards are maybe on to you. There could even be retaliation right. against you. Um, I'm curious, like when you were talking about this with your editors and with your lawyers and, and with people who loved you. I mean, one of the details that really caught me in, in the story is when you're fleeing and it mentions that your wife is there. And I was like, whoa, your wife was here the whole time. Like, like when <laughs> what 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 did you decide about? Um, like, was there a safe word? Was there like a time, a certain scenario <laughs> where you knew you were going to get out? Well, my wife wasn't there the whole time. She she came for a couple of stretches, and that was always a question. You know, she had asked me that. What's what would be the thing that would happen that would make you pull the plug? And my editors said the same question. And you know, they always said to me, you know, if at any point, any point, you don't want to do this anymore, stop. You know, I mean, there was there was no no question about that. You know, whether it was a, I was there a day or not. And for me. The question was, it was, it was more complicated because, I mean, to start with, I'm in a crazy place, a place, you know, it's like, where do you decide is the, the point where it's too much? It's, it's kind of arbitrary. I mean, it was definitely if I had ever been in a kind of physical confrontation, that would have, that would have been an end point. But, you know, I really wanted to, to watch this. There was this whole process happening in the prison while I was there that, you know, it was kind of breaking down in a way. It was really interesting to be there to watch that happen, you know, and to watch um, the state kind of take over and the prison, the company kind of struggle to hang on to it. And there, there, towards the end, there started to be this question in my mind of, is this enough? You know, is this getting to be too much? Because I was really kind of get, becoming just, I was really a guard, you know, at that point and was kind of wrapped up in all of the psychological dynamics that guards get wrapped up in. And I didn't want that to happen. And I knew that if I did it long enough, you know, it might be harder to kind of undo. But there's always the question of, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow? What if like I leave and then this huge event happens tomorrow and I miss it? <laughs> right. So it was kind of fortunate in a way that I didn't have to make that decision and the plug was kind of pulled. One of the questions I had was actually like 
So as this prison is losing its sliver of slivering grasp on um, any sense of order, you can kind of see like, wow, uh, this can't last. Like this can't possibly endure. But for a company like CCA, is losing one prison a big deal to them? Or is this just like a Burger King franchise? It comes and goes. We open a new one. We close one. One doesn't work. Like, does this even shake the structure of a for-profit prison company like this to lose a prison? That's a good question. Um, I don't, you know, I don't totally know the answer to that. They're pretty tight-lipped about this kind of stuff. But yeah, they do bring in $1.9 billion in revenue every year. And Win was a particularly low paying prison for them. They made $34 per inmate per day. In other states, they might make you know $60 around that per day. So um, I don't know. But I mean, I do know that while I was there, there was there was a lot of a really big sense of concern around it. You know, it was like felt like they really, really wanted to hang on to the prison and they were kind of doing everything they could to make that happen. So I, I had the sense that it was important and it wasn't something they just felt like they should just cut loose. But they did give up the contract just, you know, two, three weeks after I left, after it kind of came out that I'd been working there, they gave up, gave up the contract. But all they really ever said publicly was um, to their shareholders. And they said that the, the prison just wasn't making enough money. Yeah. So this, there are, the events that you talk about here are sort of uh, late 2014. Um, and this is coming out about a year after uh, your tenure there, yep. knowing that they had four months of note taking from a CO, like what what has CCA done in the period since uh, you were outed? Around this story? Yeah, around the story or the phantom specter of this story that they probably didn't know right. exactly what it was going to become. After I left, I, I reached out at some point to everybody who shows up as a character in the story. And a lot of them, you know, I never got a hold of, they didn't respond, and some did. And there were some that I was really surprised by. One of them was the assistant chief of security who was there. So she told me a lot about what happened after I left. You know, the first thing she said happened was the corporate office sent an investigator in and they kind of pulled together anything that had my name on it, you know, right upside down, contraband had confiscated. Um, and they interviewed uh, some of the employees at length about some of the stuff that I'd done there. But I was really careful. I mean, I, I was completely by the book the whole time that I was there. They, the state made everyone go through fresh background checks. And, you know, there was a sense that they were kind of freaked out about it. And then they announced that they were giving up the contract. And months later, we got a letter at Mother Jones from a lawyer representing CCA. And we got several of those, you know, as the months went on. And, you know, they they basically warned that there could be consequences if Mother Jones published any anything written by me about that prison. And I assume that when you were talking about this before you did this story, this is not an unexpected outcome. I mean, uh, you don't re- remain right. the biggest um, uh, private person company in America without suing some some journalists. But right, I'm, right, yeah. I mean, the you know, the unexpected part was that they would know ahead of time. You right. know, so that was kind of a, a curveball that we had to deal with in in writing the story and you know getting it ready to publish. Was there an incentive to get it out quickly as a result of that, or was did it cause you to have more sort of concern? 
Yeah, no, we were very careful about it. And not only did they contact us with a lawyer, but the lawyer that they used was a lawyer that represented a billionaire who had been, we'd been in a lawsuit with for uh, several years. You know, he, we, we did win that lawsuit after CCA contacted us, but, you know, they they chose somebody who was costing us money, you know, that was um, making us pay, even though even though we, we won the suit, you know, we still we, we still had to pay for it. So this is basically a, a Peter Thiel um, kind of scenario where uh, someone who right. has a bone to pick with Mother Jones is um, financially backing lawsuits that are unrelated to their original claim in order to either tire you out or empty your wallet or in some way discourage you from doing stories like this. It's kind of incredible to me from a bedfellows perspective that anyone would want to back a lawsuit by a private prison company that was beyond. I mean, the the, the <laughs> fact that, that... I wouldn't say that he was backing the lawsuit. Um, the same attorney. But, you know, uh, they, they basically both. used the same attorney, same right? Attorney. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a... Yeah. Um, it's a strange, it's a strange uh, overlapping world. Um, so the scene that right. really has stuck with me from it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the lawsuit, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing that the most interesting parts of it probably can't uh, be discussed. Um, so I, I do hope that more information about <laughs> how, how this all happened um, does come out. But the the thing that really yeah. stuck and with they me, they haven't, uh, there there is no lawsuit right now. Just to oh, be okay, clear. it's there, a um, legal. Yeah. There's been a, a legal. Um, uh, parameters uh, delivered by a third party uh, with outside of the auspices of right. a lawsuit. Um, but certainly there is an attempt to, I mean, having read it, there's certainly an attempt to discourage you from publishing it and a attempt to attempt to say that this kind of an investigation is illegal. I think they use mm-hmm. the phrase uh, more appropriate for uh, entertainment or celebrity investigations or something like that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. They said my methods were more more appropriate for celebrity and entertainment reporting. You can uh, put that on your cover letter for Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> so among the scenes, among the scenes that you chose that really like come to life on the page, there's a scene in which an inmate is. I don't know if remember if he's speaking to you or to another guard, and he says, "You're going to be doing half of my time with me. You're working a 12-hour shift mm-hmm. here. You're never going to get a day off." Like. You're in here half of half of my sentence. And I think that that really becomes the theme uh, of the story. What I thought I was going to read about was the poor treatment of inmates here. But the story is really about sort of a dual tragedy of people who have are in this prison and people who need the nine hour an hour job guarding them and how it ruins both of their lives for the most part. So. I'm wondering if yeah. that was an idea you had going in to sort of make it 50-50 about the, the two sides, the, the two two groups who are serving time, mm-hmm. or was that something that emerged while you were there? Uh, that was something that emerged. That was something that, uh, an element of the story that surprised me. I mean, I became a guard because that was the only way that I thought to get in. It wasn't that I wanted to write a story about being a guard, and once I was there, it was clear that a lot of these guards were just poor people who had no other options. I mean, they're taking a $9 an hour job. There were a lot of single moms working there. There were kids right out of high school working there, people trying to supplement their retirement. I mean, the the relationships between the guards and the prisoners are very complex and there's many elements to them, but I did see a lot of 
camaraderie at times between guards and prisoners over their disdain for the company. They kind of all could connect on this feeling of being screwed over in some way by the company. And that, you know, when I started the job, there's, there's a sense as a new guard that you're kind of being pulled in two different directions. There's the supervisors that really want to keep you loyal and keep you on their side and they want you to do your job. And then there's the prisoners that want you to be on their side. And a lot of the guards go to the prisoner side. They already feel like they're not getting, the company's not giving them what they should. So they uh, start to connect with prisoners and some prisoners use that to their advantage. You know, the guy senior talking about the prisoner was talking to a cadet and kind of uh, insinuating that he should consider bringing contraband to sell. And that, that was something in training that they were warning us about all the time. They People would actually say to us, you're going to go in there and you're going to feel like you're not making enough money for this job and you're going to be tempted to do things to get more money. I mean, was it difficult in terms of uh, keeping your cover is the wrong word for it, but you're, you live in Oakland, California. You are a person with a mm-hmm. certain set of life experiences. The majority of the people who you're working alongside in this prison are people who are, I would assume are from that region in Louisiana and are right. coming from with yeah. a totally different. So, I, I mean, you, your differences from the prisoners is obvious because um, you are not serving yeah. time. But how did you navigate that divide between yourself and the guards? I grew up in rural Minnesota. I grew up poor myself. I mean, Minnesota is very different from Louisiana, but there was kind of a way that I just fell back into my rural Minnesota self, you know, and I, you know, it's not hard for me to kind of relate in that milieu, you know, it's not like it, it, it might be for somebody who is, you know, kind of lived their whole life in whatever, in San Francisco or something. And I, I was also just reserved. I mean, I, I tried not to talk about myself too much. I would just kind of, you know, stay back. And, and there's this kind of, you know, macho culture that that works in. People ask you, I'm not going to push you anymore about your personal life. Um, so, you know, you kind of like wiggle around a little bit. It seems to me that the question of empathy looms sort of large over the story. There's um, empathy between the guards and the prisoners, and you seem to empathize with both of them. But the story also illustrates a lot of the hazards of that kind of empathy. Right. So I'm interested in how you were able to navigate caring about these people and mm-hmm. thinking about their lives and well-being without losing your objectivity as a reporter and without putting yourself in danger. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's a, it's a challenge of doing this kind of reporting and immersing in something like this, because at some point you can't, I mean, it's a strength that you're so deep in it that you're really showing this world from the deep inside, but you can't really stay objective. I mean, not that anybody ever can, but this is kind of another level. There was a point in, in that job where I felt like empathy was a handicap you know, it was a hazard. And when I first went in, I think this is true for a lot of guards, actually, uh, especially younger guards, they go in and they really, you know, have this kind of attitude, like they're going to do things right. And, you know, they're going to treat prisoners as human beings. And, and then it doesn't take long to realize that that 
is a really hard way to do the job because um, some people will take advantage of that. It's also, there's just not enough staff for you to be actually dedicating individual time to anybody. And you also have to deal with, you know, or at least I did, you know, would discipline people. Sometimes I felt guilty about it. You know, I wondered, are they going to go off to, to segregation for this little infraction? Once I started learning how to turn that off, it got a lot easier. You know, the job got a lot easier. I wasn't in so much emotional turmoil. I mean, I was, I was kind of unique because I'm a journalist and I had this kind of idea that I had to do the job in a certain way. For other people that I saw, I think when they get to that point, they either kind of give up and they quit or they uh, just become really hard or they just kind of don't really do much and just kind of float through and try to stay out of the prisoner's way. How did you get started in journalism in the first place? Uh, I started um, in the Middle East. When I was 19 years old, I traveled to the Middle East, and uh, it was shortly after 9-11, and there was already talk of attacking Iraq. And I you know, realized that it was an important part of the world at that time. And I came back and studied Arabic and um, also studied in the Middle East uh, quite a bit. And then uh, just start freelancing, took some trips to uh, Darfur, just on my own, you know, just with my own money, just to get published. And then I uh, moved to the Middle East and would freelance for newspapers. Um, I was also kind of working as a photojournalist and then start doing more long form stuff really kind of shortly before I ended up in prison myself. What was it like um, after you had spent this time in prison and had become the object of media attention to go back to being a reporter yourself? Well, anyone who has been the object of media attention knows how much media gets wrong. <laughs> and once you once you see that, I mean, when I got out of prison, it was like literally almost every story had some detail wrong. You know, once you see that, you have to question everything else, you know. <laughs> and I think that's true for anybody who knows any a lot about something. You know, when they read journalism about it, they see a lot of things that aren't right. So you know, it just made me really aware of that and feel like I really need to be careful about it. But I mean, I didn't like being a subject in that way, you know, and I think I try to be really aware of that with people that I'm that I'm writing about. People don't generally get portrayed the way they want to be portrayed, you know, in the media. Have you spoken to any of the people who appear in the story since it was uh, published? No, I haven't yet. Not since being published. Um, I did, you know, meet some of them recently before um, before publishing. Actually, no, I did hear from one guard. I mean, we haven't actually spoken on the phone, but she messaged me and, and uh, said she really liked the story. Having reported from areas in the Middle East that are volatile and dangerous mm -hmm. and now from within this prison, how does the, the danger of war compare to a more confined, sort of isolated danger like this? And how does it change your tactics? I mean, I reported from Darfur, I reported from Baghdad, and this felt more, more dangerous than any of those experiences um, and more unpredictable, I guess. I mean, there's always a major level of unpredictability when you're in a war zone, but there's also ways that you, you know, especially if you're, you're working with somebody, you have to be working with a local fixer that kind of can, you know, read the terrain. You learn how to move within it and stay out of areas that are really dangerous um, at the wrong times. And this was 
it was just a, the whole place was volatile. When you're in a war zone, it's not really like that. You know, they're, I mean, generally it's a volatile place, but once you're there, it's like life is going on still, no matter what. But in a prison, it's just, everybody's angry about being there. You know, you, you can't know what's going on around you all the time. There's just so much. But I think, but I, I guess also, I think, you know, some of that, doing that work before it carried over into this, you know, just being able to, to try to calmly read a situation. There was, there was one time the prisoners were threatening to riot in the whole unit. I kind of developed this. I mean, maybe it's just kind of the natural way that I am, but I think some of it came from, from these earlier experiences of reporting also that, you know, when things get really tense, I kind of calm down in a way, you know, really careful not to kind of escalate the situation. So you've now gone through these two experiences where you've been somewhere else and had to reemerge as your normal American Shane Shane Bauer, mm-hmm. who is Googleable self. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you feeling? Like, th- is this stuff still? Does the smell of it still on you? Are you able to wash it off? Or uh, I was actually really surprised when I left how quickly I just kind of bounced back. I I thought it was going to be a long process when I got it out of. Iranian prison, it was a it was a long and difficult process to readjust. But this was really different. I think just the fact that I was doing this by choice was a major difference uh, psychologically. You know, I, I came back to, to California and it was just kind of like, wow, this is over. And I mean, there was this sense immediately that I had, you know, I, I had this distance and I was kind of looking back at myself at win. I was like, wow, I didn't really realize how deep I was into this thing and what a bubble I was in. But once I got outside of that bubble, I think it, it disappeared pretty quickly. But I guess the thing that I probably grappled with most afterwards in writing the story was just a feeling of, you know, kind of shame in some ways about who I was as a guard, you know, and some of the things that I had done, you know, it's sending, sending people to uh, solitary confinement is something that's hard to come to terms with, even though, you know, in that situation, I don't know what else I could have done. Um, There's not really another option. I was, I was inside of this much larger system and there were very few ways to deal with things. And I had to do what I could to, to keep myself safe. I, I personally think that this is one of the finest pieces of investigative reporting that I've ever read. Um, Thank you. I'm wondering if you're able to feel a sense of accomplishment and joy about doing good work, despite the grim nature of that work. Yeah, I, I feel I feel great about it. I mean, it's it's exciting to have this thing actually coming out. Good, um, good. I, <laughs> Yeah. Can you, can you like, like, are you able to cheer for yourself still? Yeah. <laughs> no, this thing is, this project has been a long one and a very intense one in many ways. I mean, not just those four months I spent there. Um, it's, there's been many chapters to this and, and getting it out the door and making, you know, dealing with, with all of the pressures that, that exist around a project like this. And it's really gratifying to put so much into something and go through an experience like the one I did at Win, and actually see that people read it <laughs> for one and, you know, and respond and it makes it feel worthwhile, you know, to do that kind of stuff. 
Well, I hope uh, I hope you and uh, and your wife uh, are going on a long vacation after this <laughs> uh, because you you've certainly earned it. Uh, thank you very much, Shane Bauer. Uh, where where can people? So there's the article in Mother Jones, mm-hmm. and then there's going to be an audio component, and that's going to come out through Reveal. Yes. Um, so the the. Actually, by the time you're hearing this, it will already be out with Reveal. Right. Yeah, it'll be out uh, this Saturday. Um, there'll be a podcast. Um, the we've dedicated the whole print magazine to this story, um, and you know you can find it on our website along with videos that uh, James West produced about about when. And there's going there's also some some uh, kind of follow up stories that are on the way. Uh, hopefully next week. All right. Well, I look forward to those. Thank you very much, Shane. Thanks a lot. That was the long form podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Shane Bauer and everybody over at Mother Jones for helping make this happen on very short notice. Uh, thank you to my co-host Evan Ratliff and wearing a different hat this week, editor Max Linsky. Yes, the B team is in and they are rolling. Uh, we will be back here with our normal episode on Wednesday. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.